Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, June 20th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Melissa Topshire. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Antony Blinken meets with Chinese President Xi Jinping in Beijing. Australia approves a landmark indigenous rights referendum. Putin reveals a peace agreement allegedly signed with Ukraine last spring. Malians vote on a new constitution. More than one and a half million people are reportedly dropped from Medicaid. Israeli helicopters fire missiles in a West Bank raid. Extreme heat kills over 170 in northern India. Biden plans $600 million in climate investments. A new study finds a small group of super shedders spread the most COVID. And a Titanic tourist vessel disappears. In our top story, Antony Blinken meets with Chinese President Xi Jinping in Beijing. And here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Al Jazeera, The Japan Times, and BBC News. In a highly publicized trip to Beijing, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken began two days of talks with senior Chinese officials on Sunday. The dialogue comes during a time of soaring geopolitical tensions. Blinken became the Biden administration's highest-ranking official to visit the PRC. He will also visit London during the same trip. Blinken spoke with Chinese Foreign Minister Qin Gang for nearly eight hours on Sunday. The two diplomats discussed a range of issues, emphasizing the importance of diplomacy and maintaining open channels of communication across a full range of issues to reduce the risk of misperception and miscalculation, per the U.S. Department of State. On Monday, Blinken met with Wang Yi, director of the Chinese Communist Party's Office of the Central Foreign Affairs Commission, who ranks above Foreign Minister King Gang in the party hierarchy. Wang blamed the strained relationships between the two countries solely on the U.S. and stressed that Taiwan was China's core interest. He made clear that there was no room for negotiation regarding Taiwan, while Blinken's approach was conciliatory. Blinken's visit to China was concluded with a meeting on Monday between him and President Xi Jinping. Both Xi and Biden said they had candid and in-depth discussions. Those were the facts, and on this podcast, we separate the facts from the narrative spins. We'll begin this round with an anti-China narrative from Vox. Blinken's visit to Beijing is welcomed by both the U.S. and China as the risk of open conflict in the South China Sea between Chinese and U.S. military forces is something nobody wants. However, at the end of the day, Beijing has more to lose than Washington from a breakdown in bilateral relations. It may be possible to contain PRC aggression through increased sanctions and dialogue. Cooling tensions is in order. And Global Times brings us a pro-China narrative. Blinken's visit to Beijing is a much-welcome sign of increased communication between the PRC and the U.S., amid all-time low relations. While many observers do not expect a breakthrough in the relationship, both sides are committed to continuing to meet and talk. Beijing wants to build a stable, predictable, and constructive relationship with the U.S. and expects Washington will uphold an objective and rational understanding of Beijing, rather than a hegemonic approach. And frequently we'll get a nerd narrative on this show from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's an 8% chance there will be active warfare between the U.S. and China before 2027. Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org slash pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now back to the news. The Australian Parliament approves an indigenous recognition referendum. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, DW, and the Financial Times. 
The Australian Senate has approved a constitutional referendum that would give Indigenous Australians a policy advisory committee in Parliament. If passed by voters, it would be the first mention of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island peoples in the Constitution. With the legislation passing by a 52 to 19 margin, Australians will soon be asked to vote on whether or not to constitutionally enshrine an Indigenous voice to Parliament committee. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese will be required to set a date for the vote later this year. Albanese has been promoting a voice referendum since winning the general election last May with the Indigenous Australians minister saying the referendum would help give a voice to needs and aspirations of Indigenous Australians. Referendums in Australia require a double majority to pass, with a majority of votes nationwide and in at least four out of six states required for it to become law. Out of 44 proposals and 19 referendums, only eight have been approved by voters. Polling shows support for the referendum has fallen as the public debate has grown more acrimonious although it's still supported by a majority of Australians. The opposition, Liberal and National parties have adopted a no stance on the vote, narrowing the chances of success. Melissa, thank you for those facts. Our first spin is a left narrative coming from The Guardian. The referendum is perhaps the first serious chance Australia has to chart a new equitable course for the country, one that includes the voices of the Indigenous peoples of Australia. While not a perfect solution, the enshrinement of an Indigenous Advisory Committee would help rectify Australia's shameful history of disenfranchisement and racism against the First Peoples on the land. Australia should ignore the old guard and establish a new and fair relationship with Indigenous Australians. And here's the right narrative from Sky News. There is a myriad of reasons to oppose the voice referendum that have nothing to do with racism, despite claims from the left. The details of the powers and scope of the committee are currently unknown, with Labour effectively asking the public to vote blindly. The committee being permanently enshrined would also increase the risk of partisan capture or obstruction, which Australia cannot afford. Finally, to grant one group special status over any other is incompatible with the values of Australia and its multiracial society. It kind of reminds me of Saturday's story uh, about the Governor Abbott in Texas banning the uh, diversity and equity and inclusion uh, groups in the colleges in Texas. Oh, yeah. Like a similar struggle of sorts. In our next story, Putin shows a signed peace agreement with Ukraine. Here are the facts as agreed upon by WION, Euronews, Shearpost.com, Common Dreams, and TASS. Footage from last weekend's meeting between Vladimir Putin and African leaders shows the Russian president displaying an alleged peace treaty between Russia and Ukraine, which he says was signed during a peacekeeping negotiation in Turkey in the spring of 2022. Putin displayed the document after the delegation of senior African officials, led by South African President Cyril Ramaphosa, traveled to St. Petersburg on Saturday, having been in Kyiv the day before. The delegation was the latest attempt at seeking to promote Russia-Ukraine peace talks, endeavors so far attempted by Turkey and China without any apparent signs of success. After showing the document, Putin asked the African delegation, Quote, where are the guarantees that they, Ukraine, will not renounce any other agreements in the future? He claimed that after Russia last year agreed to withdraw from the outskirts of Kyiv as a measure of goodwill, Ukraine went on to disregard the agreement and threw it in the garbage of history. Ukraine has not commented on Putin's remarks. However, multiple reports suggest that Russia and Ukraine did reach a preliminary agreement. A foreign affairs article from last year reads, quote, 
In April 2022, Russian and Ukrainian negotiators appeared to have tentatively agreed on the outlines of a negotiated interim settlement. Additionally, last May, the Ukrainian outlet Ukrainska Pravda, citing sources in President Volodymyr Zelensky's inner circle, reported that during a surprise visit from then-British Prime Minister Boris Johnson in April, Johnson came with two simple messages for Kyiv. The first was that Putin is a war criminal. He should be pressured, not negotiated with. And the second is that Ukraine can sign agreements with the West instead of Russia. Meanwhile, on Sunday, a statement from the office of the South African president said that the two-day working visit to Russia and Ukraine have paved the ground for a renewed peace process. The proposal presented by African leaders on a mission to Ukraine and Russia has created a foundation for future engagements that will contribute to a road to peace and resolution to the devastating conflict, the statement read. Thank you, Eric. Those were the facts. And we'll begin this round of spins with a pro-Russia narrative from WIO News. As Putin said, Russia was never opposed to holding negotiations. Such talks mediated by Turkey were in fact held in the spring of last year. But after Ukraine signed a peace agreement and then, after Western pressure, turned around and threw it away, why should Russia again trust Ukraine? And the pro-establishment narrative comes from Business Insider. Ukraine is a sovereign country that makes all its own decisions. The idea that Boris Johnson forced Ukraine's hand and how to proceed with peace negotiations is insane. He simply warned that the country that's already invaded Ukraine's borders can't be trusted on peace talks, much like trying to negotiate with a crocodile that's got your leg. And we have another nerd narrative from the Metaculous community. This one says there's a 10% chance that there will be a bilateral ceasefire or peace agreement in the Russo-Ukraine conflict before 2024. Malians vote in referendum on a new constitution. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Africa News, DW, Voice of America, New Vision, and Voice of Nigeria. Malians on Sunday voted in a referendum on constitutional amendments that the ruling military government says will clear the way for presidential elections in February 2024 and a return to democratic rule. Under the draft constitution, the West African country, hit by a decade of violence by Islamic extremists, is to have a two-chamber legislative system, with the Senate added to the previously existing National Assembly. Other changes expand the role of the president, who is to gain more power over the prime minister and cabinet, and that of the military, which will be given executive authority. The referendum's preliminary results are expected to be announced on Tuesday. The draft reflects changes proposed in previous failed attempts to revise the Malian constitution and also includes the establishment of a separate audit court for government expenditures in line with the 2000 West African Economic and Monetary Union Directive. With voter turnout expected to have been low, some 8.4 million citizens were called to cast ballots in the first electoral test for military leader Asimi Goita, who came to power in a 2020 coup amid the Islamist insurgency coupled with political and economic woes. The constitutional referendum came after Malian Foreign Minister Abdullah Diop on Friday called on the UN to withdraw its 13,000-strong MINUSMA peacekeeping mission from Mali without delay, saying the force had failed to contain the spread of jihadist violence. Melissa, thank you for the facts of that story. The first spin is a narrative A coming from Aram Online. While the Malian junta under Colonel Gyota claims the referendum is part of a transition back to civilian rule, in reality, it's about consolidating its power. There is no need for a new constitution, as the current one is not responsible for the crisis in Mali. 
Mali has more pressing problems, such as the fight against terrorism and poverty. And the last thing the Sahel country needs is a personalization of power and Goida running for president in 2024, contrary to the promises of the military government. Narrative B is from the Mirage News. This plebiscite is a significant stepping stone in the ongoing transition process toward a return to civilian rule and the restoration of constitutional order. The draft constitution is the result of the National Reform Conference and, despite all the criticism, has been widely welcomed by civil society and religious groups. It also reflects Bamako's commitment to the 2015 peace agreement to address the alarming security crisis. Malians must come together and vote for the draft constitution to relaunch the peace process and pave the way for stability. Good luck, Molly. That's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> Seems like a process. In our next story, one and a half million people have been dropped from Medicaid rolls since April. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, NPR Online News, and Politico. About one and a half million people have reportedly been dropped from Medicaid rolls in more than two dozen states since April and the winding down of the COVID pandemic. The federal government requires states to review the eligibility of its Medicaid recipients. Florida has dropped the most people, with its total including several hundred thousand. Several states have dropped half or more of the recipients, including Arkansas, Idaho, Kansas, Nevada, New Hampshire, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Utah, and West Virginia. Medicaid, the government health insurance program for low-income and disabled people, reached 95 million enrollment during the pandemic, as the government mandated states couldn't drop people and people didn't have to reapply. Those protections are ending, and many people are losing coverage over paperwork issues, and often finding out they're no longer covered when they seek or receive service from a medical professional or pharmacy. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services recently held a press conference to urge states to slow down their disenrollments and to warn that it could pause disenrollments if it feels states are going too fast. Okay, those were the facts, and we'll begin this round of spins with a Democratic narrative from the Daily Kos. Republican governors are rushing to force people off their Medicaid rolls, sometimes for clerical reasons, to burnish their right-wing reputation for the national stage. They care more about politics than the people in their own state, and it'll be a sad state of affairs if any of them are able to earn election to higher office. Daily Caller gives us a Republican narrative. Biden is the one failing these people. Let's not forget that the COVID-era rule protecting these Medicaid recipients was issued during the Trump administration. In many cases, Republicans and Democrats are removing people from the rolls to adhere to state law since the rule ended. Instead of playing politics, the current administration should act if it thinks something wrong is taking place. Israeli helicopters fire missiles in the West Bank. Here are the facts as agreed upon by DW, The Guardian, The New York Times, Al Jazeera, The Times of Israel, and Al Monitor. On Monday, authorities said at least five Palestinians, including a 15-year-old, died in an Israeli raid into the northern West Bank city of Jenin. The Palestinian Health Ministry reported another 91 were injured. The Israeli army reported a major exchange of fire erupted after its forces entered Jenin to arrest wanted suspects with an attack helicopter firing missiles at Palestinian fighters. An unnamed Palestinian intelligence official said it was the first time since 2002 that Israel used air assets in the West Bank in this way. Israeli media reported that at least seven Israeli soldiers were injured during the raid. 
At least one powerful explosive device reportedly laid by Palestinian militants disabled several Israeli armored vehicles. The minister reported that Palestinian journalist Hazem Nasser was wounded by Israeli fire as he covered the raid. Al Jazeera reported that after hours of fighting, Israeli forces sought to arrest two wanted men, one with Hamas and the other with the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, or the PIJ. After the fighting subsided, PIJ claimed that three of those killed were members from its branch in Janine and the nearby town of Tubas. PIJ also claimed responsibility for the explosive device that disabled the Israeli armored vehicles. The situation in the West Bank, Gaza, and Israel has been deteriorating, with Israel launching regular raids into the West Bank, especially in the north, following a series of Palestinian attacks last year. Since the start of the year, at least 164 Palestinians and 21 Israelis have been killed. Those were the facts, and our first spin is a pro-Palestine narrative coming from Middle East Eye. Israel continues to use the cruelest possible policies, such as destroying Palestinian homes, which is a war crime, and even journalists are not safe. Emboldened by international silence after Tel Aviv killed more Palestinians last year than any other calendar year since the Second Intifada, the occupation is becoming increasingly violent. Here's the pro-Israel narrative from the Jerusalem Post. Israel's raids in the West Bank are meant to stop terrorist plots, and everything possible is done to mitigate harm. In this instance, Israeli forces acted professionally to apprehend terror suspects from Janine, which is a hotbed of terrorist activity. Extreme heat kills over 170 in northern India. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, Washington Post, BBC News, and New York Times. Around 170 people have died from the extreme heat of India's latest heat wave. The heat-related illnesses overwhelmed the hospitals in India's most populous states of Uttar Pradesh and Bihar. Ahead of the extreme heat, the Indian Meteorological Department warned residents with a red alert signifying the arrival of extreme and deadly heat conditions. Temperatures in the northern region rose to 45 degrees Celsius, or 113 degrees Fahrenheit, as the Balia district was crippled by an electricity crisis. On Sunday, the department issued additional red alert warnings for forecasting that the severe weather would continue into Tuesday. Residents of all ages were warned about the possibility of heat-related illness, including heat stroke. Controversy arose on Friday when Dr. Dewakar Singh, the chief of Balia District Hospital, announced that the heat may have been a factor in the increased number of deaths. Dr. Singh said that while a majority of the patients were 60 years of age or older and suffered from pre-existing conditions, those conditions were exacerbated by the heat and likely resulted in their deaths. He was removed from his post the next day. The surge in deaths at local hospitals has led doctors to conclude that the deaths and the extreme heat may be linked. In the Balia district, on average, eight people pass away daily. On Thursday alone, the region reported 23 deaths, and on Friday, another 11 deaths. In response to the removal, the Uttar Pradesh Deputy Chief Minister Brajesh Pathak said that while Dr. Singh's statements were careless, the government was taking the increase in deaths very seriously. While India is known for its hot weather in April, May, and June, data shows that in the last 10 years, the heat has become more extreme. Thank you, Eric, for those facts. We'll begin the spins with Narrative A from Wired. As the climate continues to change and the globe warms, India has found itself unprepared with millions of lives at stake. The deadly combination of heat and humidity has overtaken the South Asian country, and the central government holds little more than a plan to provide residents with a warning. 
India simply lacks the technical solutions and the administrative abilities to adequately prepare for such dangerous conditions. Narrative B comes from Reuters. When faced with the challenges of extreme heat, India's central and local governments have stepped up to protect its residents. Short-term measures such as cooling centers have begun, and longer-term actionable plans are in place to include the planting of trees, shelters for public workers, and misting areas. India is developing robust strategies to be resilient to heat episodes. There's another nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 50% chance that the average global temperature in 2100 will be 2.51 degrees Celsius higher than the average global temperature in 1880. President Biden plans $600 million in climate investments. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC Bay Area, Forbes, Reuters, The New York Times, and ABC News. Monday was slated by President Biden to announce more than $600 million for climate adaptation projects as part of his Investing in America agenda as part of a visit to California's Bay Area. Funding will come from the Biden-signed Inflation Reduction Act and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law and will include $575 million to protect coastal areas from extreme weather events. The plan also includes $67 million to modernize California's electric grid to reduce the effects of wildfires and other extreme weather events. In August, Biden signed the act, a tax health and energy package that invests in low-emission energy sources. The White House intends to cut U.S. greenhouse gas emissions by a billion metric tons by 2030. Melissa, thanks for those facts. The first spin is a Democratic narrative coming from The Guardian. These newly announced investments will help the U.S. in its crucial fight against climate change, helping it greatly reduce emissions and stopping the planet from overheating. Best of all, it's paid for through a series of tax changes that won't affect ordinary Americans. We've also got a Republican narrative from The Daily Caller. The Inflation Reduction Act isn't the panacea the Democrats think it is, especially since they're lying about how much it will cost. Investments like the ones Biden is announcing and other parts of the IRA will actually add hundreds of billions of dollars to the national deficit, crippling the U.S. economy in ways that supposed climate change won't. And we have a nerd narrative that says there's an 8% chance that U.S. greenhouse gas emissions will be cut in half by the year 2030, according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. In our next story, a new study finds a small group of, quote, super shedders spread the most COVID. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Nature, the Lancet Microbe, I.O., and the conversation. A new study published in Lancet Microbe has provided a wide range of information on the viral transmission of COVID, notably showing that a relatively small group of, quote, super shedders spews far more pathogens into the air, spreading the disease than others. The controversial so-called challenge study, which involved intentionally infecting subjects with the virus, observed 36 healthy, young patients, 10 female and 26 male, 18 of which became infected. Notably, two participants emitted 86% of the total airborne virus. Those two individuals only experienced mild symptoms, and the study adds credence to the idea that individuals can contribute to super-spreading events in a way that is disproportionate to the number of people they come in contact with. The study showed the value of rapid tests, as none of the participants emitted detectable levels of the virus in the air before testing positive, and only a small number left a detectable amount on their hands, on surfaces, or on masks. The challenge study format has been used in multiple COVID studies, with some objecting to them on ethical grounds. 
Such studies have been restricted to low-risk subjects and provide a controlled environment to gather information on disease development. Thank you, Eric, and we'll begin with a narrative A on this story from JAMA Internal Medicine. Challenge trials create a moral dilemma and are directly contrary to the all-important Hippocratic Oath to do no harm. With a disease as novel as COVID, there is not enough information to provide patients with the appropriate knowledge to provide informed consent. These types of studies have a dark history, as humans were used as lab rats in the past, and they can even be used today to exploit vulnerable populations. Challenge studies do not provide enough value to offset the moral questions. Narrative B comes from Clinical Trials Arena. While there are obvious reasons to question the ethics of challenge trials, scientists have developed a model that can conduct them in a way that gives vital information on vaccine research and development while keeping subjects safe. Challenge trials on COVID have already paved the way for some of the world's most innovative research, all while keeping the participants safe. Doctors and scientists must do everything they can to pursue knowledge in the safest way possible. In our final story today, the search is underway for a Titanic tourist submarine. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, The Daily Mail, New York Post, NBC, BBC News, and Forbes. On Monday, the U.S. Coast Guard embarked on a search and rescue operation following the disappearance of a submarine carrying tourists to the wreckage of the Titanic. On Sunday, the Coast Guard was notified that the mothership, the Polar Prince, had lost contact with the vessel and required assistance. The tour, provided by Ocean Gate Expeditions, is thought to be the only such tour on the market, takes passengers to the famous wreckage. Tickets for the expedition can cost up to $250,000. Among those aboard the submersible are Hamish Harding, a famed world explorer and British businessman who is also known for his voyage into space on a Blue Origin rocket in 2022. In a statement, the private company said, Our entire focus is on the crew members in the submersible and their families. In addition to the U.S. Coast Guard, the Canadian Coast Guard is assisting in the search with its P-8 Poseidon aircraft equipped with technology capable of underwater detection. According to the Ocean Gate Expedition's website, the Polar Prince transports the submersible for an eight-day voyage to the wreckage. Once on site, the submersible carries a pilot, a content expert, and three tourists on the deep dive. The submarine is capable of diving to depths of up to two and a half miles and can sustain a crew of five for up to 96 hours. The Titanic, which sank 400 nautical miles off the coast of Newfoundland in 1912, remains a popular destination for both tourists and researchers. The tragic accident took the lives of over 1,500 passengers and crew and forced the remaining survivors into the sea to await rescue. Thank you for the facts, Melissa. Our first spin is Narrative A coming from CBS News. Deep sea currents and the marine environment are destroying the remains of the RMS Titanic. Researchers and preservationists must use the little time remaining to document and recover items from the ship before they can no longer be explored. Ocean Gate Expeditions is making this historic moment all possible by providing an opportunity for people to have a once-in-a-lifetime experience at a fraction of the cost of going into space. Many believe these efforts will allow the world a greater understanding of the accident and how it transpired. Narrative B is provided by The Telegraph. For decades, the Titanic has been used as a boon for profit, even as James Cameron, famed explorer and movie maker, begged others to leave the ship alone. He himself reaped $2 billion from his overly fantasized version of the tragic story. We have forgotten that the very site the tourists are clamoring to get to and that profiteers are selling merchandise from 
is a graveyard for more than 1,500 people. Disruptive profiteering actions are robbing the Titanic's souls of their opportunity to rest in peace. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, June 20th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all the articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Melissa Topshire. I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.